Okay, so my name is Eitan Hirsch. I'm a political science professor at Tufts University in Boston. And what's changed my direction a little bit was this uncomfortable realization that politics as I was teaching it just looked extremely different from politics as I was observing it. And I mean something specific by that. Like if I were asked what it means to engage in politics as a, as a professor, as a scholar, I would say, okay, if you want to engage in politics as an ordinary person, that means working with other people with some goal in mind to influence the government. And you have to have some strategy for achieving that goal. Simple as that. But basically everyone I knew and know, family, friends, students, they, they think of themselves as engaged in politics, but they mean something different. They mean that they're cognitively engaged in politics. They are intellectually interested in it. They are emotionally tied to it, but they are not engaged in working with other people with some goal and a strategy to influence the government. They're just not doing that. This is Wally Knox. Welcome to The Political Conversation. Today I'm going to talk to Eitan Hirsch, but before we begin, I want to ask you to just stop and take a moment and think about how much time each day you spend engaged in some sort of activity that's related to politics. Personally, I have a really embarrassingly obsessive habit of turning on CNN, clicking to MSNBC, and clicking to Fox basically to hear snippets of stories and to get some sense of what it is they're trying to convince me is the news of the day. Let's listen for a moment to Hallie Jackson on NBC as she does a story on what it feels like to live one of those days. In our Sunday Spotlight, NBC's Hallie Jackson goes inside the increasingly polarized American media culture that has us talking past each other. For professional organizer Michaela Santin in progressive Portland, it's 2:20. It's NPR in the car. Support for OPB comes from our members. On her phone, Facebook. Her evenings, network news. John Barry used to be part of the media in Redlands, California. He still starts his day this way. I'll still read the LA Times sometimes just for laughs, but it's getting so outrageous that they'll even put anti-Trump stories on its sports page. But the self-described Twitter addict Great to have you, Rush Limbaugh here with Rush. Now runs on the right. The only political show my liberal wife and I can agree on is Morning Joe. But the rule is when Joe is not there, then I get to turn it over to Fox and Friends. That portrait by Hallie Jackson of what it what it is like to have a day crammed full of seemingly political activity is a little too familiar. Aton Hirsch looking at that ask this. What is the difference between politics as a hobby, as a, as a sports fan kind of approach versus what does it mean to be, be organized and interested in actually achieving some goals in government? Before we begin, I want to say one more thing. If you're a college-educated liberal Democrat, brace yourself. What you're going to hear is not exactly a flattering portrait of you or of your colleagues, but I urge you to hear out Aton Hirsch. Listen to what he has to say and see if it can enter your life in one way or another. So let's begin. 
Eitan, let me first ask you, what interested you in politics? What got you into political lives we live at all? Well, I think it was always going to be politics in some way. You know, I, I think that we don't have many choices in terms of how to make our civilization run well, uh, besides politics and war. I prefer politics to war. Uh, I don't think I have, it doesn't go much deeper than that. You know, we need to solve pressing problems for different people. We need to figure out, you know, who gets benefits from government and why and how to do it fairly. And so uh, it just seemed like an endlessly interesting and important uh, domain of life. Why don't we just leap off from there and go deep into your work, which uh, the, the basic books is, is Politics is for Power, which is a pretty darn provocative uh, statement. I don't, I don't recall a lot of discussions in society where power is trotted out as something that people want to embrace. People apologize for pursuing power. Uh, they, uh, they, they deny they're pursuing power and obtain a lot of power by doing that. Uh, but I love the title of your book for that reason. Give us a, a sketch, if you would. What do you see as the fundamental ideas you're putting out in that book? Sure. So um, the fundamental idea is, I really have four goals in this book. The first is to diagnose uh, this problem of what I call political hobbyism, that is doing politics really for yourself, just to, for your short-term emotional or intellectual needs, rather than to get anything done or to serve a community or do anything like that. So to diagnose the problem of political hobbyism, that's the first goal. The second goal is to try to weigh in on this question of uh, is this something that's new? Do we do political hobbyism, a shallow form of political engagement, more now than in the past? Uh, the third and maybe trickiest goal is to figure out whether this is possibly good for the world, that we have a third of the country spending an hour or two every day on social media, obsessed with politics but not doing anything, or whether it's bad. And obviously, maybe not obvious, but I'll say it. <laughs> the answer is it's bad. And then the fourth goal which is probably the most important goal, is to talk about the alternative. That is, what does it mean for a regular person to engage in politics in a, in a good way, in a productive way, in a powerful way? And so that I do through, I tell seven stories of volunteer organizers who I think do a model a form of political engagement that I think is a real alternative to political hobbyism. Let me just stop though and say that you mentioned the title, the, the title is uncomfortable for two reasons. Right? Uh, first of all, the concept of political hobbyism is insulting <laughs> to some people. <laughs> like, I care so much about politics. I pay so much attention. And who's this jerk of a professor telling me that I'm just doing it a hobby? It's more important than that. And so I want to work through that. The second reason it's uncomfortable is for the reason you mentioned, which is that power is just a, feels icky as an idea to people. And I want it to feel less icky by people understanding what that means and why we have no choice, really, but to want power in government. I, as I read your book, it just was very rapidly clear what you were talking about is successfully participating in governing the decisions that government makes. And that's exactly, I mean, power abstractly is the ability to do one or another thing. Um, in this case, the ability in a democratic republic to marshal forces and do something that uh, governs your society differently. That's right. I mean, every voter has power of their, of their vote. That just means they get to weigh in 
in politics through voting. But a lot of people want more than that. Um, and they want to try to get other people to vote a certain way, or they want to get lawmakers at the federal, state, or local level to do something different. And if you have power, that means you can exert it. That just means that you have the ability to exert influence over uh, other voters, over candidates, uh, over over lawmakers and bureaucrats. And so that's that that is what politics is about. Uh, that that that's you know. And so if you're not doing that, right, you're just ceding the floor to people who do do that. That's all. I mean, if you're not seeking power for your views and values in a democracy, you're just saying to other people who want to do it, like, <laughs> go for it. And uh, you know, as I talk about right from the introduction of the book. There's some pretty scary people out there who want power more than the hobbyists sitting on their couch want it. Another aspect of your book that undoubtedly is controversial I want to get into is your book focuses really on on liberals and their attitude toward hobbyism or real politics. Uh, and college-educated liberals in particular. That must have raised the hackles on a bunch of folks. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. It did. Um, there is forms of political hobbyism we see across the political spectrum. On the political right, I think we see a lot of people going down these intense rabbit holes online and building up conspiracy theories and it's never really clear where the boundary is between this is like fun and, and engaging and I believe what I'm seeing. Uh, what's going on on the educated left is that you have a group of people that um, know politics is important and they have time to engage in politics because they report spending an insane amount of time of their day following the news, listening to podcasts, doing all that. And... Like, if you're going to think about who are the people in a democracy who are going to be able to lead, you're looking at, you know, people who have time and they know it's important. And if you look at college-educated voters right now, you see that they're generally not engaging in productive ways. Um, and you see a different kind of problem on the political left and the political right that, you know, weigh in on a bit. Like, one, one is that... The political left right now, anyway, has a much, um, at, at least the way they talk about it, they have a stronger political agenda than the right has. That is, they have they want a government to do different things. They want to change government to um, to make laws about healthcare and about the environment and about uh, all sorts of things. They have a prescriptive agenda, and if you have a big prescriptive agenda, then hobbyism is not going to get you there. If you don't have a big prescriptive agenda, that is, you kind of are happy with the status quo, then, you know, who the heck cares if you're, if, you know, all your people are just, you know, fiddling around on Twitter, like you don't need to do anything. So <laughs> enjoy. But I, the left actually wants to, wants to do more stuff. Um, and, and so their hobbyism is, is hindering them more. We can get more into like psychoanalyzing what's going on there, but that's, that's the rough story. So let me ask you, what has been the reception of your book among liberals? That's a good question. You know, I it's hard to know how to gauge it. Um, I think that the strongest reception has been actually among organizers who they are the choir in some ways that I'm preaching to. But the book helps them share with other people that they know who are the hobbyists um, it helps them give some language, right? I mean, I think that there's so many people out there who are 
good volunteers in politics, good organizers, and they see their friends who say, oh, yeah, I'm with you. But, you know, they're not really with them. There's no, you know, they, they don't, most people who are engaged in politics, most of their friends are hobbyists, basically. And it's nice to be able to have some language to say, hey, what you're doing is not useful at all. Like your little yard sign that you put up, your uh, tweet or Facebook messaging is not productive. And here's some examples, like in the book, of, of how to, why, why it's not productive and what the alternative is. Um, so I think that's been in some ways the, uh, the where the, where the reception has been has been um, positive. I think that in the end it's um, hard to write a book telling people they're doing something wrong. Uh, you know, the 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 if you want to write a bestseller about politics and your audience is a bunch of college educated liberals, the best thing to do is write about how they're right about everything. Uh, how Trump is so stupid, how the Republicans are evil and stupid, and that's the book that's going to be a bestseller. Um, or what you say is, this, this is a very, very uh, other common thing that Democrats love reading about, is about how it's not their fault that everything is screwed up. It's uh, institutional problems. It's the electoral college. It's gerrymandering. It's money in politics. Uh, it's all things that are not any individual's fault, and they get to feel good knowing about the institutional rules and mechanisms that create outcomes that they don't like. And that's all very convenient, right? If you, <laughs> I think that's very convenient to get a message that either the other side's a bunch of evil, stupid people, and the rules are set up so that those stupid, evil people win. Um, that's the message that is a bestseller for Democrats. And... You know, I'm not trying to write a bestseller for Democrats. I'm trying to <laughs> convey a message that uh, that is useful, but it you know it makes it makes people uncomfortable to say, "Oh, I actually have some role and a responsibility." Sorry, I have an ambulance going by right now. I think it's a harder sell for a book, but a more important message to be able to say, "Like, look, you do have a responsibility. We all do." No, I I think those are really interesting ideas. The let me let me challenge you and push back a, a bit on the institutional point there, because your book uh, goes at length into party institutions, I mean, that whole section that discusses the history of the parties and the decline of the local party structures, uh, was actually, for me, one of the most interesting parts of, parts of the book. Um, but reading that history, it is, and I, and I loved it also because I lived through the tail end of that history as as the, the local party structures were last gasping. Um, I, I saw that happen in front of me. Um, but, um, but it really is a bleak picture, Eitan. It really, when you tell the story over a 150-year period, the trajectory is so obvious and so much of the elimination of the parties. I wonder you know, if there's ever any real hope of reviving something akin to local political activity that uh, does the kind of things you want to see done. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I mean, right, so the, the, the institutions that I'm focused on are not government, right? It's not going to be resolved by any congressional uh, change or a constitutional change. It's about party organizations and um, 
and, you know, in some ways, union organizations and religious organizations, a lot of organizations have changed. Uh, and on the democratic side, in particular, it's been replaced by kind of a, a technocratic worldview. And, and this, this comes, um, up all the time, even today. And let me just give you an example. Um, Democrats to this day, uh, will, will say that, you know, they're basically using the scientifically proven ways to engage voters in, canvassing and door knocking and uh, postcard writing and all these things the political scientists say are statistically significantly likely to increase participation. And you know what? At some level, that's correct. That's, that's correct, that these campaigns all have these small but you know, real impactful uh, effects on turnout. What that worldview is missing is that any time a campaign or a party or a volunteer group is communicating with strangers, that is door knocking to a stranger's door, phone banking to a stranger, writing a letter to a stranger, it is a band-aid. It is a triage for the lack of actual community ties. And, you know, I always bring this up. Before a local election, I'll usually send to my friends from my local community, uh, maybe a hundred people, hey, here's who I'm voting for in the local elections. And the people I know, some of them just go right into the polling place with my slate and they say afterwards, thanks, say, you know, I wouldn't have voted if you didn't tell me and I wouldn't have voted all those people because I don't know any of those people. And those, those ties are mostly through religious community. Those, those, um, now I, I can easily, easily increase the power of my vote by 10, by 20, by sending an email like that. It is vastly more effective. Obviously, obviously it's vastly more effective than contacting a stranger by email or by phone. But so, so what? So what? So the point is that um, anytime you're doing those kind of scientifically proven things, you can feel good that you're doing something that's effective, but you should know that what you're doing is totally ineffective relative to the alternative of someone who knows 100 people from church telling those 100 people who to vote for. And um, I think the Democratic Party, more than the Republican Party, has moved away from those deep community ties, often tied to religious community, and into these methods of volunteer engagement that are strangers talking to strangers, and they convince themselves they're effective, but in, in really, reality, they are, they are this Band-Aid. The, I mean, I spent many years of my life uh, in, engaged in campaign activity, um, either with candidates or as a candidate myself. And when you're in that setting, and you know this very well, you feel like you have no alternative but to use those kinds of techniques. There you are. There has been no party structure for decades. You have no loyal cadre to turn to. Um, your ability to campaign boils down to how much money you can raise and how you can deploy it rapidly for the most effective short-term turnaround. And I'd be stunned if the political science uh, papers most folks rely on talk about anything other than a very short-term effort uh, to get the vote up one half of a percentage point in one particular election. But the the history you're talking about, the history that has led to the point where there are no local structures, um, goes back, you know, virtually a century. Um, and to rebuild those structures, it seems to me, is a very long-term operation. 
That's right. I mean, I think we're seeing it, um, you know, in different communities. We're seeing uh, since the Trump era on the Democratic side, I think there's been a an upsurge in in organizing. We've seen that. Um, and the question is how sustainable those communities are uh, as an ongoing basis. I mean, the thing about local parties and unions and churches is that they're very durable. Um, and people come year in, year out, whether it's at a particularly exciting time in politics or not. And that's what's missing, right? It's that um, when you have organizations that pop up and then disappear when everyone lets their guard down and they you know, had some one, one election victory, then it's not sustainable and you just have this endless cycle of back and forth between the two parties. So there was another aspect of your book that uh, that struck me. Um, you discuss what is it? Seven different uh, activists who uh, are examples of the virtues you think would really, really help. And the, the stories are just fascinating, Aton. They're the, the individual personalities. They're so diverse. Uh, they're such different people with such different roots. Um, but the stories are a very effective way of, of explaining exactly what you're talking about. But what came through to me was you really respected those people. Those are people you admire on a very high level. And it wasn't, I got the sense, just because they got a few more votes turned out than somebody else might have. There was something about the very political activity itself that compelled you. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm going to take a big leap here. The big leap was that that just rang bells in my mind of the whole philosophic political theory called civic republicanism, in which the point of political activity is that, as Aristotle would say, I mean, let's get really into the weeds here, uh, we are political creatures. And to live a fully human life means that you must round it out in one way or another with political activity. And folks like Hannah Arendt um, discussed that in, in recent times. That seemed to be something you were reflecting. That's an interesting way to put it. I never thought about it in those terms. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what happened. I, I wrote this book without those stories. Um, it was about why political hobby is, is bad, and uh, where it comes from and, and uh, why it's bad. And I had an undergraduate who I tasked with reading the draft and giving me her comments. And she said, you gotta tell the alternative. It's just too depressing to read about all the things are doing bad without talking about the good. And to be honest with you, I was a little hesitant to jump into the world of activists and learn what they're doing and in part, that's because I never identified with activists. I never saw myself, you know, I, I, like I, I feel like uncomfortable at protests. I just don't, I don't know. There was something about, probably because my politics are kind of in the center. Uh, activism didn't always, and just didn't necessarily speak to me. And then what happened was, as I started talking to organizers all over the country is I realized that I love these people <laughs> because they were totally different than I imagined. They were not people who scream and shout for the most part. They are people who 
build organizations from scratch through empathy and care. And they're strategic. They count votes and they count people that they can bring to a table. Um, and they're and to do that, basically, you have to be patient and kind. And the connection to me, honestly, um, was religious. Uh, that is, I come from a family. My brother, and my brother-in-law, are both are both rabbis, and I am very. I think a lot about building community in a religious way. And what I saw is that these volunteer organizers, these aren't professionals, the political ones, they act in some ways like uh, like pastors, they engage in pastoral care, they take care of people, they listen to people, um, and they bring their core values that their community shares to life. They help other people channel the values they have into actions. And so for me, I'm sorry to say it wasn't Aristotle <laughs> uh, or Hannah Arendt, but it was seeing this connection between politics and community that made me not just want to like you know write about these people as an intellectual exercise, but really made me feel like a, a deep connection to the seven people whose, whose stories I told. What you were saying about how the best political activists serve a role similar to that of a pastor in a religious community rang bells for me of uh, efforts within the Democratic Party referred to as souls to the polls in which particularly in black communities, voters who attend church services are then encouraged as a group to go to the polls and vote. Does that connection make sense to you? Right. Well, I mean, you know, uh, religious spaces are really special because not only uh, do they channel people's core values, but they're also local, right? That is, the people who go to a, a church tend to all live in the same community. And so they get to think about political issues and their values all in one place. I mean, I think that if you're just a member of kind of a disjointed internet community, then it's harder to weigh in on, you know, state and local politics. All the attention is focused on national politics uh, because that's the only connection you have to everyone else in the community. But in a local community, like a real community of neighbors who take care of one another, um, then the core values also influence politics up and down, up and down the ballot. And so, you know, I think efforts to um, to vote together as a community are, are are really great. Now, I will say that what's interesting is a lot of hobbyists, particularly, you know, kind of college educated liberals, they don't necessarily like the idea of of religious engagement in politics because they're worried about it being coercive. Um, you know, I, I talk sometimes, I talk in the book about actually like political organizations doing more social services, political organizations like local political parties or civic groups getting in the community, doing things like uh, babysitting clinics and auto repair clinics and things like that as a way to build community. And oftentimes, just like with the religious uh, criticism, I, folks say, I don't know, I'm uncomfortable with that. I'm uncomfortable with political groups trying to um, connect to community service, to religious engagement because um, of feelings like that can be coercive. And I guess my take on that is uh, we don't have much of a choice. There's, there's a, there are no stronger ways to build community than through those things. And and it's a mistake to say, you know, I find religion icky and therefore, you know, we shouldn't uh, invest in, in churches' engagement in politics. Um, I, you know, I just think that's a mistake strategically. 
One of the things I wanted to explore with you is this. When, when I read the book reviews of your book and interviews you've given, I was struck by the fact that most folks were tantalized by the internet aspect of hobbyism, um, tantalized by one or another thing along those lines. But in reading your book, you go deeply into party histories and the changes in the structure of political parties and how that has led to the current situation. You talk at length about polarization in society and whether or not the characterization of polarization has merit. Um, And uh, your book really does touch on at least half a dozen really important issues that have nothing to do with the internet. Um, And yet you relate it deeply to the message you're really trying to deliver. Um, I was really struck by that. The book has greater breadth and greater depth than the commentators are giving it credit for. (laughs) <laughs> that might be. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's all, you know, you can only get into so much. But I think that, um, you know, talking about how the Internet has changed politics, a lot of people can kind of can, can chew on that easily. And um, uh, and in a, in a short interview, I think it's easier to talk about some of the changes that the Internet has brought to the world versus, you know, the history of political parties, I think, hopefully makes good reading and is illuminating to, to voter to, to, you know, to readers. But um, uh, but it's I think it's hard to explain. So I think that folks pay attention to the, the easy stuff a little bit more. I'm a little more interested in the other stuff, quite frankly. Uh, can we take a moment and talk about your views on polarization in America and the role of hobbyism in polarization? Sure. I mean, there's a few ways to weigh in on this. But, um, you know, as politics is more polarized and nationalized, it's that combination that's really important then people make politics about basically good versus evil friends and enemies. And so when I think about the other party, I can paint this caricature of the other party that is not like the neighbors in my community who I disagree with. It's people who are who have really different values than I have. And so we get to a place where that's what politics, that, that, that's what makes politics fun in a way. You know, I draw this analogy to, to baseball. I, I'm here zooming in talking to you just a couple miles from Fenway Park, uh, where I like to go. And, um, the routine at Fenway Park when the Yankees are in town is for the whole stadium to shout Yankees suck over and over again. And it's funny. It's, you know, and it's a game. And so if we stop to think about it, like, why do we say Yankees suck? Um, because it's fun, basically, to taunt the Yankees if you're a Red Sox fan. And um, it has no more meaning, really, than that. And in politics, I think that the, the more politics is, like, not about being productive and getting things done and solving problems. And the more it's, like, about a show, the more that it becomes just fun for, for politics to be about, you know, these enemies you have. When, when you do politics as a, as an individual at the local level, at the state level, oftentimes those, um, stereotypes just break down completely. Not because they don't exist, right? But it's like, if I want to work in my community on issues of housing, of issues of policing, of issues of education, uh, transit, how, he- uh, healthcare, anything like this, the opponents that I have to face are not some caricature of people who disagree with me. They are literally my neighbors. And um, I have to take them seriously because that's the only path to being productive. 
And I think that what's happened in politics is that because people's eyeballs are just so focused on national and so focused on the worst version of their opponents, um, it becomes just easier to play into the kind of good versus evil form of politics and and forget like that if you want to get anything done, you actually just have to get more votes than the other side. And that requires doing a bunch of stuff at the state and local level that um, that means not demeaning your opponents, right? Like you can't you can't just go and just uh, hate everyone and then hope that somehow you're going to win a majority in a state house. You got to get enough people to like what you're doing. And the recurring theme in your book that that I read is that there's a huge number of Americans to whom, frankly, both sides could appeal. Um, and uh, the what occurs to me is the theory the theory that the country has completely polarized that it's not just uh, the elected officials who have become divided into a left camp and a right camp, but it really goes down to the citizenry. All of us are in a left or a right camp. That theory confirms people's beliefs that they really can't convince anyone else of anything. And all they need to do is turn out more on our side than the other side is able to turn out and we'll win elections that way. So there, in my mind, I don't know if yours, there's a connection between the desire to see the country as polarized and some people's political actions. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, and, and, and again, that just all breaks down below the national level, right? Below the national level, it just is, it's not what the story is. Um, at the national level, that's right. You know, the, the sides can't get agreement on anything. And so you just got to turn out more people than the other people. And that's all there is to it. Um, I, I'm not saying that story is right, but I'm saying that is the, I think the dominant narrative. Uh, and, you know, at some level, at a state and local level, you can, that is the path to victory. That is, you know, you have these local elections where turnouts at 10%, 15%. And, uh, you know, maybe, oftentimes the path is, hey, just get a bunch of people who have not voted before to vote. They agree with you, but they, you know, don't vote in these local elections. And that is a path to power. Um, but Oftentimes at the state and local level, there is much more of a strategy of persuasion and, and deal making that, um, that's an important part of politics that is just, you know, uh, either, either, uh, feels dirty to some people, like deal making, uh, or feels like beneath them. Back when I was in the California legislature as a very much a liberal Democrat, I was invited to join the Bible study group and the, in the legislature. A friend invited me to do that, so I went. And I said, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm Jewish. And the reply was, well, we need a rabbi. So I joined the Bible study group a couple times. And it was entirely composed of evangelical conservative Republicans who were very serious about their study of the Bible and would turn to me now and then for commentaries on the Old Testament, and I would weigh in with what little I could I could do to help. I was not looked on pleasantly by my Democratic colleagues. I was not supposed to attend Bible study classes with the enemy. I paid a political price for doing that. But I also noticed 
that I had a political benefit from doing that because I came to know the Republican members of this group as individual human beings. And there were times when I literally would walk over to them on the floor of the assembly and say, I know what you think about this bill. You can give a good vote on this bill because of your convictions, and you don't have to completely stick to the party line. And it worked once or twice. Well, I like that, you know, in part because it's funny, there was a there was always there was a story a while ago in Congress that the most bipartisan thing that happened in Congress was that a bunch of Republican and Democratic lawmakers exercised together. They did this uh, video exercise called P90X. And I know this story because I was <laughs> a fan of that same exercise program, too. And I thought it was cool that members of Congress were doing it. And. Uh, that's nice. But the difference between that and a Bible study is that you actually have conversations with people about core values and um, you and you and you get to know them not by who's strongest, but who's most insightful. And uh, and 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 so I think that, you know, in terms of bridge building, I would say that's probably a, a better option than than exercise. <laughs> At one point in the book, you make the comment that uh, the uh, the obsession with hobbyism impedes the ability to pass uh, policies that otherwise would be passed. And I think this came up in the course of your discussion of polarization and how the elected officials have polarized and how difficult it is to get compromise measures even discussed because the idea of compromise itself has become suspect. Um, but you seem to have uh, an agenda uh, that you saw as a centrist agenda that was not being addressed. Um, are you comfortable sharing that agenda with us? Well, I mean, I guess I, I, I have an agenda that, like, I, I think that there's a lot of changes to the status quo that the, the public would benefit from, and that um, are not, you know, clearly, like, left or right. They're just Changes need to make, right? So if I think about where I live in Massachusetts, we have serious problems, just like in California, other places of, of housing affordability. We have a bit of a crisis with housing affordability. We have a crisis with transit. Both those things are related to the environment. And it's not just like, you know, it's not like a liberal do-gooder thing to, to want to deal with those things. It's devastating to the economy that we have to have people drive two hours on the highway in traffic to get to a job, you know. And we just need more energy around solving these problems, and we need to solve them. And and I th what I see, like in Massachusetts, I'll just use an example because it's the state I, I, it's my home state now, is that we in Massachusetts will send to Washington senators, like our senators are Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey, who are who are partisan warriors. I mean, on Green New Deal, Medicare for all, um, and. That's who the public wants to send to Washington to fight with the Ted Cruz's and the Josh Hawley's of the world. But then in Massachusetts, they send to the governor's office a governor who is uh, sort of a middle of the road Republican who in promises like never to raise gas taxes to keep things kind of, you know, very status quo. Actually, I'm, I'm quite critical of our governor, not because he's in the center, but because he's not using his popular platform to get things done. 
Uh, and what I would say is that when the voters are telling you in their state elections that like no gas taxes, no big changes, keep things as they are, and when they're sending Elizabeth Warren to Ed Markey to Congress, something's wrong, right? What's wrong is that like they they want to have fights at the national level and they want to have nothing happen at the state level. Um, and to me, I think that the the position that I am in politics is that a, I don't want to have fights at the national level uh, because I don't think that Elizabeth Warren and Ed Markey are ever going to convince senators from across the country to do things. And I don't think we need to have every bill be a national bill. I don't think most of our domestic policies need to be done at the national level. At the state level, though, I'd like a, a much more active government that's not left-right active, but that's just helps to address these problems. And that involves everyone from policymakers to unions to business leaders to get stuff done on, on something like that scale. And, and, you know, we just need more of that. And I think that when people's eyeballs are in, are in Washington and focused on fights between the far left and the far right, uh, just none of this important stuff gets done. So, I mean, that's, that's where I am politically. I, I just think we have a lot more to do and I'd prefer it to happen at the state level rather than the federal level because, you know, I think we really see the limits of the federal government getting, getting things done together. People just have very strong disagreements. And, and so, you know, I prefer, I prefer Massachusetts, honestly, as, as someone who lives here, just to, to do the right thing and to get ahead and to, to prepare for the for the future of the economy and just kind of ignore the other states that don't want to go along. I don't need to I don't need to have my senators fight with them. Probably an unpopular position to have. I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, before we sign off, I wanted to just pick your brain. Uh, if you were giving recommendations and you are giving me recommendations to folks who are listening to you uh, on what's really productive to read these days, um, other than tweets. Um, what would you direct folks to? Well, I would just, I, w- I well, I would say that uh, the 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 most important thing they can do is to make sure their news diet r- reflects like that. Maybe half or more of their news diet is at the state and local level. Uh, so, um, and and what I would say is that to actually get the news at the local level for a lot of people requires some legwork. Uh, you might need to actually like attend uh, a public hearing, a town hall meeting. And I would say that that is part of someone's news diet, that like figuring out what's going on at their state level or in their community is is more important than like the next in-depth analysis of what's going on in Washington. Um, and so I don't have, uh, you know, one news site that will be good for everyone. I just think that like people's news diet should reflect uh, a state and local priority. Thanks, uh, Aton. I really appreciate it. Okay, nice talking to you. It is difficult to talk about Aton Hirsch's views because he doesn't want us to talk about them. He doesn't care if we have some clever reason to agree or disagree with him. He wants us to change how we live our political lives, change how we live our lives, to go out and do something real. His is an existential challenge, not an intellectual one. His is a different kind of political science. And Hirsch is right about many things. He is right that traditional party structures have dried up and blown away. 
and that the two parties have tried to replace them with ineffectual, massively expensive substitutes. In my life, the clearest example of that was in 2016 when I wanted to help the Democratic candidate Hillary Clinton win the election. I live in Los Angeles and knew that helping her in California was a waste because she would win there by millions of votes. In fact, she beat Trump in California by over four million votes. So I did what the Clinton campaign asked me to do. I went to Las Vegas to try to help win that state for her. When I walked into the Clinton headquarters on election day, they knew just where to assign me. Here I was, a white-haired, white guy in his late 60s who had just driven in from Los Angeles. So where was I assigned? To an impoverished black community, of course. I worked hard all day, walked all my precincts, knocked on all my doors, spoke to lots of folks, and I am confident that I did not turn out one additional voter. Some stranger, an older, white guy, turning up out of the blue on election day had zero effect. As Aton recommends, friends and colleagues making recommendations to friends have real effects. Oddly enough, shortly after I interviewed Aton, my city, Los Angeles, became embroiled in a fight over redrawing the lines to finding its 15 city council districts following the recent census. I was invited to help out by my local neighborhood homeowner leader, whom I know well. Do we hear echoes of Aton Hirsch? I don't think I entirely agree with Aton, however, that local political activity avoids the stereotypes and hyperbole prevalent in national politics. One friend of mine who lives nearby disagreed with my support of one set of lines and accused me of participating in, quote, a subversion of democracy, exclamation point, end quote. Folks take local politics very seriously and can push it to the same extremes as on national issues. But I wholeheartedly agree with Aton's advice to act politically. I was unable to lure Aton into a discussion of political philosophy, but I don't want to end this pod without saying one name, Hannah Arendt, and one book, The Human Condition. If you read in order to confirm today everything you thought yesterday, please don't read Arendt. She has a way of being unsettling, in part because she redefines the whole set of our necessary political vocabulary. For one example, she redefines political freedom. We're used to the idea that our political freedom is identical to our ability to choose from alternatives arrayed before us. Go left. Go right. You are free to choose. But Arendt offers a far better definition of a much more important freedom. The ability to start, to initiate, to begin. The capacity to begin something unheard of, something unoffered by anyone around us, unexpected even by ourselves. It is a deeply human capacity, and it is the reason Arendt thinks that a life lived without real political action is simply not as full a human life as one lived with it. I want to thank Aton Hirsch for engaging in our conversation. And I also want to thank Hallie Jackson of NBC for their excellent evocation of a day spent deluged with political media. As always, my thanks to my producer, Anna Kumu, for her excellent work. My next conversation will be with Stony Brook political scientist Yana Krupnikov about her soon-to-be-published work, The Other Divide, 
Krupnikov and her co-author John Barry Ryan have conducted extensive research uncovering the striking differences between heavily politically engaged Americans and the rest of us. Until then, you can join the conversation by contacting me at wally at thepoliticalconversation.org. And I look forward to you joining Yana Krupnikov and me next time for The Political Conversation.